His last message is where he commissioned those that would choose to follow him, respond in faith to the drawing of the Holy Spirit, believe on the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and follow him. He commissioned them in his last words. Thanks for tuning in to the Putnam City Baptist Church podcast. Our 2019 theme is making disciples as we help our community know God, become family, and impact the world. We hope this message encourages you wherever you might be. If you'd like to learn more about PCBC, visit us online. About 20 years ago, I was serving as a student pastor in uh, just northeast of Atlanta. Uh, Dr. Jim Austin was here not long ago, did our, one of the speakers at our churchwide D-Now, so you met him. I was serving on his staff, and uh, it was a large enough church that there was no way any one pastor could do all the hospital visits. So Tuesday was my day, and a hospital visit could mean I had to go to Atlanta about 50 minutes away. Uh, that was if there was no traffic, but if you've ever been through Atlanta, uh, you're not likely to make it in 50 minutes. So I had to plan for a whole day uh, just to go do this one visit. Pleasantly surprised, though. Beautiful people uh, that I met when I walked into the room. Uh, there was a, a lady, her, her mother who was sick, and some other family members. And when I walked in, I, I, had, I didn't know everybody in the church because there were thousands that actually attended. But I was the guy who made announcements every week. We didn't have the video back then. Uh, announcements, so I was a guy who went up, made announcements at the end of the service. I was laughingly called the minister of announcements. So everybody kind of at least knew my face if they didn't know my name and knew that I would give announcements each week. So when I walked in, she said, hey, Sean, fortunately, I'd read the background on the family, so I knew the name, so I was able to greet her by name. And she, as we got to talking, she said, my grandfather would have loved you, as well as the rest of the staff. And I said, well, uh, that's great to hear. Why do you believe that? She said, my grandfather was a pastor, and he understood ministry, and he had a, a big heart, especially for ministers as well, because he had pastored for like 60 years uh, before he went to be with the Lord. And I said, tell me a little more about your grandfather and the uh, legacy that he left. And she said, well, I'll summarize it with his last message and the impact it had on my life. I said, what do you mean his last message? She said, well, it was a Sunday night service and he pastored a little small church and, and this particular country church, they had a chair on each side of the pulpit, a little behind it, but on each side. Typically, one chair was for the pastor and the other chair would alternate off between the deacon who was responsible for the offering prayer who would come up after the worship set, but before the worship set, it was used for the music minister so that he could quickly get up and down. And then the deacon would come up when it was time to pray. She said, so my grandfather, I was just a little girl sitting on the front row, and I could remember my grandfather sitting in his chair. And after the music part of the service ended, he got up and he made his way to the pulpit, put on his glasses as if he were going to read, but instead of reading, he looked out over his glasses as often he would do when he would speak and not read. And he said these words. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first command with a promise that you may live a long life. She said he put his glasses down. I remember it like it was yesterday. He put his glasses down 
He sat down in the chair, he closed his eyes, and he slipped into heaven to be with Jesus. She said, my grandfather died doing what he loved to do. Doing what he was made to do. And he had preached messages for over 60 years and could have delivered as his last message any message he wanted to deliver. But he chose to deliver Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. She said, it changed my life forever. She said, it changed my life as a little girl, even as a responsible adult visiting her mother in the hospital. It changed the way I treated my parents. It changed the way that I responded to my parents. She said, I don't know that I could express with words the impact my grandfather's last message had on my life. As I was studying this week, I couldn't help but to think, what if... The last message of the Lord Jesus would have such a profound impact on those that claim his name. Wow. You say, what do you mean? What was his last message? His last message has been given a title, if you will, by church scholars from many ages. It's been referred to as the Great Commission. Dr. Bill Jones, the president of Columbia International University, writes this in his book, Putting Together the Puzzle of the New Testament. He said, so strongly does the Lord Jesus emphasize in his last message this idea of making disciples of all nations during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension that these verses have become known as the Great Commission. So the last message of the Lord Jesus literally could be called the Great Commission. His last message is where he commissioned those that would choose to follow him, respond in faith to the drawing of the Holy Spirit, believe on the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and follow him. He commissioned them in his last words, with his last message. Now, if we look in the scripture, this message actually took place over the course of the 40 days between his ascension and his, or excuse me, his resurrection and his ascension. On day one, the day he was raised from the dead, John and Peter, after seeing the tomb was empty and hearing from Mary that Jesus had risen from the dead, had gone back and gathered the other disciples in an upper room. And in John chapter 21, day one of the resurrection, after the resurrection, Jesus is recorded in this upper room. Now the door was locked because they were keeping out any religious leaders and others who might interrupt their meeting of this in celebrating this good news that the Lord had been raised from the dead, and he appears in the room in his resurrected body. Nothing, not even the walls or the locked door could contain him. So he actually steps into the room through space and time, steps into their room and says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now we know that the Father, from studying Jesus' life and his word, that the Father sent Jesus from heaven to earth first to die for sin and then to proclaim this message all about it. He proclaimed it preparing them for what was going to happen. He said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
He said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. When he would hang around with sinners, the religious leaders in Matthew 9 would ask him what he was doing. And he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but the unrighteous. So Jesus came to lead people to the Father. And he taught them to follow him so they could live a life that would please God. The Great Commission, according to John chapter 20, verse 21, is to make disciples. We also see a second occasion that this takes place, and it's recorded in two passages. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Not yet, but in a moment, we're going to open up that passage. And the reason we're going to choose to open up this passage out of the four places we see the Great Commission is the Great Commission is explained in greater detail in this passage. But at this same event, because he delivered the message in three occasions. Day one, John chapter 20, verse 21. Somewhere between day 13 and day 38, up on a mountain, and it's recorded in Matthew 28, and also, also Matthew 16, 15, where he said, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And then we see it again on the third occasion, the fourth place in Scripture, which is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, why did he say in Jerusalem? Because that's where they were physically present. So, in other words, we start making disciples right where we are. While Judea and Samaria, geographically, these were the regions just outside of Jerusalem. So, in other words, we're not only to work within the shadow of our steeple, if you will, modern day, steeple of our church, which we should, but we're also to look beyond it. And then he clarified so that it would be in keeping with the rest of the Great Commission in the heart of God. And he said to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, that we would make disciples here, that we would make disciples there, and that we would reach out with God's help and make disciples everywhere. Now he clearly explains this in Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. So if you would please, today if you're physically able, as we open this passage and read it together in honor of to honor the Lord, would you stand with me today as we read the Word of God? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This took place the same time that Mark 16, 15 took place, somewhere between day 13 and 38, reiterating what was said on day 1 and also what would be said on day 40. Here's how it reads in the Word of God. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the power that you teach us in your word. Thank you also for the promise of the Holy Spirit to make the word come alive in our life. I pray in these next few moments that we have together that your spirit would have freedom to move in each one of our lives so that the last message that Jesus gave would have an unbelievably profound impact on how we choose to live from this day forward. Speak to each one of us, I pray, right where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This idea of making disciples could not be more important for the church in North America today 
All studies indicate North America being the United States and Canada. All studies indicate that with the population explosion and the decline of the church, that the church in America is losing ground on making disciples. Now, some would question that in a church like PCBC where we see that our attendance is growing. But even in Oklahoma, as Baptists here, who, who believe that Jesus is God the Son, the Son of God, left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and was raised from the dead. And apart from faith in him, we cannot have salvation. Something that Baptists hold true as a core teaching of the Bible we agree on this and that it's necessary to communicate that for people to become a disciple. Hence, Dilbeck, the executive director, last, just a couple of weeks ago in the annual meeting of the Oklahoma Baptists, was quoted out of his prayer uh, in the Baptist uh, mission that I read this past week. And in his prayer at this big annual meeting of Oklahoma Baptists, he prayed that we would reverse the trends of making disciples here in Oklahoma because we were losing ground. Again, that, that's uh, nothing new, if you will, compared to the many of the other churches across the United States and Canada. We simply are not reaching people like we once did. And as the population continues to grow, that means the world becomes more and more lost that we live in and the church has less and less influence. Yet, according to the very words of Jesus, this is not his plan. What is his plan? It's outlined perfectly in the Great Commission. And there are three facts that the Great Commission is broken down into. I encourage you to write these facts down. Facts number one, we see in the Great Commission, His power. His power is available for you and me. Look at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. All of Jesus says right before He ascends to heaven, He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Now you might say, why did you tag the therefore go on there? It's important that we spend a few moments here because technically speaking, if we're really investigating the scripture and what it really says in its original language, it doesn't say therefore go. I can't explain why it was translated that way. But I can tell you in the original language, the emphasis is not on going, the emphasis is on the next fact in the Great Commission. The emphasis on the first fact in the Great Commission is that his power is available as we go. So in the Greek, the original language this was written in, the verb go is actually in the present participle, which means that it's implied that we are going. It's not explicitly saying go. It's implicit in that it's implying that we are going. So he says, I've got the power as you go. There's a transference of that power. In other words, that he's making it available to us as we go about our daily business. Whether we're a stay-at-home parent and we're taking care of our children and we go out of our room and minister to our kids that day. Whether we're a student or a teacher or someone who serves in a school and we walk into a school that we would remember that his power goes with us as we represent him in that circle of environment. 
whether we're a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, whether we work on, whatever it is that we do, wherever it is as we are going, that we would understand that we don't have to walk in our own power. We can walk in his power. This is a message for the church today. Years ago, I had a missionary, I read about a missionary who came to America, spent about a month, about 30 days, going from church to church, observing the great ministry that these churches with big budgets are doing that they don't have in other parts of the world. And at the end of the 38, 30 days, they pulled this pastor in who saw these big churches, churches kind of like ours that get to do a lot of stuff because of generous people like you, and said, what stood out to you about the ministry of the local church in America? And this was his reply. I'm greatly surprised and how much can be accomplished without God's help. Not long ago, uh, Sherry and Seth Padgham and I had the opportunity to go to India. Many of you prayed for that trip. Uh, Seth and Sherry had their private rooms here with a bathroom that they shared. And then I had a private room and I had a bathroom all to myself. And the bathrooms are a little different there in the sense that there's a place that you can sit. But then there's a bucket with two spigots and up the wall those two spigots are connected by a line to a little it looks almost like a bubble and it's a hot water heater well I had been there before so I felt like I was a professional and I should explain to him them on how to take showers I said what you're supposed to do is flip the little switch that cuts the light on and that lets you know that the hot water heater is on and then you use the spigot, cold water, hot water, and you regulate your water in the bucket. And then you pull the pitcher off the side of the bucket, and you douse yourself, and then you lather up. Then you douse yourself, and you clean up, and you're done. First morning, I walk into my little private bathroom there, and I go up the line, and I see the hot water heater, and the light's on. It's kind of a reddish-orange light, you know, and I thought, well, that certainly means hot, so, boy, I, I can't wait. And it was a little bit cool, you know, early in the morning, late at night. I thought, I can't wait to take a hot shot. Well, dump hot water on me so I get there and I do it and I go man it was some cold water and I thought okay that must be the cold maybe they flip the sides you know compared to America maybe they do it the opposite that we do so I did the other one wow it might if it could be colder it was actually colder and I patted the little hot water heater you know and the light was still bright kind of reddish orange and I thought man I didn't want to mess with Sherry and Seth, so I said, I'll just, you know, tough it out. I'm just, yeah, this is out in the wild, living in the jungle. This is just what you do. Boy, I put that water over my head, and I felt like John Travolta in a Grease movie. I had chills, and they were multiplying. Let me tell you what, it was cold. Day two, I thought, maybe they just cut it on, and it takes a day or so to warm up, right? So the next day, it was grease too all over again, buddy. I'm telling you, it was colder if it really could have been. It was freezing. So I don't remember if we were walking or, you know, working at the school or late at night. I just remember Seth and I having a conversation and I saying something like, well, how's y'all's hot water? And he said, oh, it's pretty good, you know. And I said, really? I don't think mine's working. And he walks over to my restroom, and he's a little taller. He didn't have to use a bucket to hit the switch. He could just hit the switch. And when he hit the switch, the light turned green. And evidently in India, green means it's on and it's hot. Do you know, in the American church, in a similar way, it's time for us to flip the switch. Let me explain. 
There was no power in that hot water heater until the switch was flipped. You and I will not fully have power for daily life or to be fruitful in making disciples until we flip the switch. And what I'm talking about is actually meet with God. See, the scripture makes it clear in Ephesians 1.13, the moment that we believe we're sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit, his presence never leaves us. But his power is not always something that we choose to use on a daily basis. That's why in Galatians 5, when Paul is saying that we're made of flesh, but yet the Spirit of God lives in those who believe, he says they contend with one another. There's a struggle. We either follow the flesh or we follow the Spirit. So to follow the Spirit and tap into his power, we have to flip the switch, if you will. How do we do that? I'm convinced we do what the Lord Jesus did. Mark 135 says he got up very early in the morning, went off to a solitary place to pray. What happened after he went out and did ministry? He would always pull back to a quiet place. Why? So that he could pray. pray. We should never talk to people about God until we first talk to God about people. Honestly, we shouldn't start our day without talking to God. Even if we are going to be alone that day. Because we need God's help. In the moment we meet with him, confess our sin, ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, then his promise becomes true in our life and the Holy Spirit can lead us, guide us, and direct us in this great gospel mission crusade that he called us on and help us in everyday life. First fact, his power. Second fact in the Great Commission is his plan. His plan is crystal clear in Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20, specifically in verse 19. Notice the first part, it says, make disciples of all nations. Now I want to clarify that the entire Great Commission is about making disciples. So what he is saying here in making disciples, he's saying we have to share the gospel. And you say, how do you get that? After we really unpack it, and we will in a minute, you'll fully understand, but we cannot make a disciple until we first introduce someone to Jesus. And we can't introduce someone to Jesus unless we share the gospel with them. Remember what Paul said in Romans 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's the gospel. The gospel should be preeminent in our life and it should be preeminent with our lips. Dr. William Wilson, a professor at Luther Rice Seminary, said this in an evangelism class. In the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ as described as the most important thing in all the world. I'm convinced the Apostle Paul agreed in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 through 6 as he's writing about the gospel. In verse 3, he says the gospel is of first importance. It means as we look at the word of God, we need to center in on the gospel for our own life and then for the life of others. L let me illustrate. I could meet with some young married couples and share 26 years of wisdom that God's given me and how not to do marriage with the mistakes that I've made and also how to do marriage with some of what I've learned in life. And they could go on and have practically apply these principles that are taught in scripture and live a great marriage. But if they've never trusted Christ, they're still gonna bust hell wide open. I could take the Sermon on the Mount and teach what Jesus says about right and wrong and about how to treat others. And I could help if someone would follow those instructions. I could help someone lead a morally great life. 
But if I never give them the gospel and they never trust the Lord Jesus, they would still bust hell at the end of their life. Bust it wide open. There's only one way. Acts 4.12, there's only one name given under heaven whereby men, women, boys, and girls can be saved. And it's the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.2-6, Paul teaches that we have to intelligibly tell them that Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, left heaven and came to earth. And lived an absolutely perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. And just as the Bible foretold what happened. On the third day he was raised from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead our sins can be forgiven. We can make peace with God and live a life many others only dream of. And that's a life where we know God. And we have assurance when we leave this earth. We'll be with him in a real place called heaven. Friend, until we share this with someone, there's no way they can know Jesus. God gives us his power, then he gives us his plan. And in the first part of the plan, if we're going to make disciples, we have to share the gospel. I hope that we don't find ourselves like the body family. I don't don't know if you heard about the body family. They moved into a neighborhood. There were four of them. They were all brothers. There was everybody. There was anybody. There was somebody. And then there was nobody. They lived in four of the five houses in the cul-de-sac. And then there was another family that moved in that didn't know the Lord Jesus. They didn't have peace with God. They didn't have a relationship with God. They had no assurance when they died they'd spend eternity in a real place called heaven. Good thing the body family lived there, at least we would think. Because they were all Christians. They were fully devoted followers of Christ. They went to church. They studied the scripture. They prayed. They did all of the things they were taught to do, at least most of them. See, when they learned that this person didn't know Jesus, brother, everybody thought that brother somebody would share Jesus. And brother somebody thought, well, I don't have to because brother anybody is qualified if he knows Jesus too. And then brother anybody didn't do it and thought, I'll leave it up to brother nobody. And you guessed it. Nobody shared Christ with the new neighbors. Unfortunately, this is a picture as a whole of the American church today. J.B. Rounds, one of the founding fathers of Oklahoma Baptist, once said, It's an emergency! The gospel advance is an emergency. You and I are called to be men, women, boys, girls, and churches of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This has been our history, and this must be our future we must tell people about Jesus second part of the third fact in the great commission is in verse 19 the second half it says baptize them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit we know from this passage as well as the context of all of the new testament that baptism comes after salvation make disciples in other words give them Jesus then baptize them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit in keeping with the early church as they walked through the book of Acts it says they believed and then they were baptized so baptism baptism is second but it's also symbolic baptism represents something it represents the death of Jesus the burial of Jesus and the resurrection when we step into the baptismal water we're publicly identifying with the death when we go under we're publicly identifying with the burial when we come up we're publicly identifying with what we believed in to be saved and that's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ baptism doesn't save us but it does announce to those who witness it that we're now in God's family or if I could use this illustration a part of his team 
I have fond memories about playing sports growing up, and probably one of my fondest was when I was a part of a team called the Tigers for a little league baseball team in a little town called Manning, South Carolina. Since those days, my favorite color is, is kind of like yellow, but almost like a gold yellow. It, it's really bright, and it's just a pretty color to me. And one of the reasons, I believe, is because the day, the first time as a young Tiger that I actually got a jersey and was able to put it on and identify as a team. See, my brother is five years older, and he played on the team. And I remember going and watching him play, and I remember people clapping, and I remember him hitting the ball and running and throwing. It just looked so much fun. I thought, I want to be on that team. Please, one day. And it happened. I was able to play on the Tigers. Now, watch this. I was selected for the Tigers, and I said, yes, I will receive that selection, and I'll play on the Tigers. And I went to practice, and I started getting ready to play and started all this stuff, but I still did not have the jersey. Was I on the team? Yes, I was on the team. Because they asked, and I accepted. Just like God calls us, we receive salvation. The jersey doesn't make us on the team, but what it did was it removed any question from anybody out there what team I was on. When I put that jersey on, people knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was a tiger. It's a picture of what baptism is. It's like putting on the jersey, announcing that we're on God's team. The only way on his team is to believe in the Lord Jesus. But once we believe in the Lord Jesus, we're baptized first because he's said to be. Second, because it is an announcement of what team we're on. Third part of the second fact in this great commission is teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In your scriptures, verse 20. So make disciples, that's lead them to Jesus, baptize them, and then teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Some would say that equally as the church in North America are failing at sharing the gospel, that we're also failing at teaching those that have crossed the line of faith how to really live for Jesus. Some would say as Baptists, we're probably doing a worse job in this, in that Baptist churches have been pretty proactive as a whole on getting people to make a decision to trust Jesus, doing all they can to make sure people trust Jesus, and we should. But it doesn't stop there. When we surrender our life to Jesus, it's the beginning of, of a greater life that God has planned for us to live for him. And how do we do this? Somebody further along the journey, further up the mountain, has to reach down and say, come on, I'll teach you what I know. Many don't feel qualified to do this. Please hear me. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus and you've begun to study his scripture or been taught his scripture some and somebody just comes to faith in Jesus, you know more about the Bible than they do. We all need to be active in teaching the scripture to those who have not been down the journey as far of us. In the American church, though, we spend most of our dollars on getting people to trust Jesus and very little on getting them to follow Jesus. So much so that George Barna, in his book, Growing True Disciples, wrote this about the American church. Here's a better strategy. Convert the four out of every ten adults and the one out of every three teenagers who have asked Jesus Christ to be their Savior in your local church into inspired, unmistakable, identifiable disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. What if we did that? What if each one of us that claims to know and love the Lord found somebody that's not 
as far up the mountain as we are and said, hey, I'll walk with you for the next three to six months. And I'll teach you what I know. And we walk with them. And they call us when they have challenges or they snap us or they uh, tweet us or whatever it is, however we communicate and say, hey, this is where I'm struggling. What's the Bible say about this? Worst thing that happens, we can look in the Bible and not know and then have to call somebody else that's further up the mountain, which we should already be in relationship with, and say, somebody asked me this, what do I tell them? Well, let's look together. Why don't you tell them this? Do you know how much growth in my own life takes place from that? I'm not talking about teaching a class, being a called teacher and gifted in teaching. I'm talking about just being faithful, just being obedient to the Great Commission. Now, I said earlier that in Hans Dilbeck, the executive director of the Oklahoma Baptist Convention's prayer that he prayed and said that Oklahoma Baptist, in his prayer, that we were losing ground and it was time to reverse this trend. I want to ask a couple of quick questions. I don't want you to raise your hands, and this is not to make anybody feel guilty. I'll go ahead and tell you I had trouble with these questions. Just so you know, if you do, you're not the only one. Sharing the gospel is intelligibly talking about Jesus lived perfect life as God the Son, the Son of God, perfect in every way, born of a virgin. He died a sacrificial death, and he was raised from the dead. If you struggle with how to do that, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 2 through 6. It outlines it perfectly. Just stick to that outline, and you're good to go. Understanding that's the gospel. Inviting the church is not sharing the gospel, although there's nothing wrong with inviting somebody to church. Telling somebody God loves you is not sharing the gospel, although it's a good message. It's encouraging. Sharing the gospels outlined in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 through 6, where we actually tell them who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how it can apply to our life because we're all sinners and need a Savior, and Jesus is the only one that can save us. Understanding that's the gospel, no, no raising hands. How many of you have shared the gospel in the last week? The last month. Since January 1st, 2019, how many of you have shared the gospel? Second question. Looking at the Great Commission, three parts, sharing the gospel, making disciples, right? First step, share the gospel. Second part, baptism. How many of you as you shared the gospel and shared the gospel and shared the gospel, God opened the heart of that individual. They came to Christ. How many of you helped them make it to the baptism waters because you believed it was important because Jesus said so? Trust me, I wrestle with these questions too. If you find yourself wrestling, like many in the church in America do, I wrestle with them too. Last one. How many of you sit down on a weekly basis with somebody that's not as far up the mountain as you, and with God's help, you teach them what you know in the Scripture. It doesn't matter your age or stage. There's no, no age too early if you know Jesus personally, and there's no retirement in the Scripture. If you can still breathe and still make words, in whatever way, whatever way you communicate, you can still teach somebody that's not as far along the journey with you. This is the Great Commission. Make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. The church in America is struggling. Let's not be the church in America. I'm going to wrap it up very quickly with this last fact. The third fact we see should give us comfort that we can do this. His presence. See, he gives us his power, 
He makes his plan clear, and then he says, I will be with you even until the end of this age. Last part of verse 20. Same thing he said in Hebrews 13, 5, just a different way. He said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. If we trace that back, this was even true of the Old Testament saints back in Deuteronomy 6. He said to them, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God will go with us and he will also empower us to do whatever is we needed. I remember playing football as a young high schooler. My dad and I still have a really close, uh, a good relationship, talk very regularly, love my dad, profound impact in my life in a number of ways. But I remember as a high schooler, my dad worked a lot of hours, worked overtime. He was a a blue-collar guy, and he, he went to work long before we got up and came to work while I was late, you know, at practice and all this stuff. But on game days... He would do whatever he could to rearrange his schedule when it was at all possible to be at my games. And I'm telling you, as a high school kid, uh, um, later in my high school career, I was playing on the outside of the line, defensive end, outside linebacker. And I can remember lining up and looking over on the sidelines because my dad was one of those sideline walkers. And the moment he would show up, I would play a little harder. I played with a level of confidence I didn't play with when he wasn't there. I can't explain it. It's just a father-son thing. But when I saw my dad, I played like I never played when he wasn't there. Even more so, God promises to be with us. Never to leave us and never say, give us everything we need. Let's not forget his presence. Let's remember it so well that just possibly, just possibly, we could be as faithful as the gospel of the hurt dog. Her story of a little dog, we'll pray after this and wrap up. Her story of a little dog that was injured on the side of the road. A guy was driving by and he loved pets, so he stopped and picked up this dog, noticed that he didn't have a collar, and he thought, somebody better take care of him, and he wasn't going to wait on brother or anybody thinking that everybody could, and then nobody would. He said, I will take care of this little dog. So he picked the dog up, he took it home, and he nursed it back to health over the course of three or four days. At the end of those three or four days, this little dog, reinvigorated in life, made its way to the front door and started scratching and barking and scratching and barking. And the guy believed he was the new owner, brought the dog back and tried to care for him, and he ran back to the door and scratched and growled and barked. This guy thought he was going to be the dog's owner, realized the dog just wanted to get out of there. So he thought in his mind, that ungrateful little dog, and he opened the door and he let the little dog out and the dog took off. Later on that evening, the owner was sitting down having a snack, watching TV, and all of a sudden he heard at the door several claw marks, not just two, several claw marks, and he heard multiple dogs barking, and he thought, oh my, what in the world? He went in and he opened the door and there was that little dog that had received healing with three or four other dogs that also needed healing. He'd received healing, so he went and found some dogs that needed healing and brought them back to the source of healing. What if we did that? Because, see, if we know Jesus, the Bible teaches we've been healed of the greatest sickness there is, and that's the sickness of sin. And I know in a crowd this size, there are always some who say, I'm just not qualified. I encourage you today to read John chapter 4 when you get home. The woman at the well, probably the least qualified one of the least qualified people in all of Scripture when it comes to making disciples, met Jesus, received salvation. And the Bible says immediately 
she went into Samaria, that's her hometown, and she shared with them what happened to her. And it literally says, first time in, in, in the region of Samaria that this happened, it says, people believed the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, help us this day to not just hear this message and walk out of here and make comments about how good it was or how bad it was. God, this day, help us to appropriate this message in such a way that we would move forward from this day and that we would be faithful to put it into practice. As James wrote long ago, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for spending time with our church family. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, visit us online at pcbc.tv. There you can also contact us and find out how to connect with us through social media channels. And visit pcbc.tv slash podcast to listen to additional messages from Putnam City Baptist Church.